Welcome to Leadership Matters, a podcast hosted by me, Steve Parker, a series that brings a fresh perspective to leadership, motivation, and how to succeed by talking to a diverse range of CEOs, business managers, and world-class talent. We also offer some personal tips to help you in your career. Each episode aims to provide a snapshot into the life and philosophy of some of Taiwan and the world's most successful leaders, and to find out more about why leadership matters. We're very, very lucky to have Peter Kurtz in the studio today. He's a co-founder of GeneWrite, a medical data company. He concurrently serves as Chief Strategy Officer at Quantum International, QIC. Peter has spent his career in the securities industry, more recently retiring retiring from his position as chairman at Citigroup Global Capital Markets in Taiwan, where for 12 years he was head of country research. He's an, he was an analyst in the biotech industry way back in the day. Of his 35 years in financial industry, he has spent almost 30 of them in Taiwan working at Bearing Securities, ING Bearings, Merrill Lynch, and his own startup company, Insight Pacific. He also worked at BMP Paribas prior to joining City. Peter and his team have been top-ranked in a number of surveys over the years by Institutional Investor, Euro Money, and Asia Money. He's been on TV, he's been on radio, he's quite famous, and... Uh, generally referred to as Mr. Taiwan often, which is a, it's a lovely accolade. And I'm really, really happy to have you here today. Thanks, Peter. Well, it's great to be here, Steve. It's a, a great format, a great platform you have. Yeah, so we focus on leadership, but leadership in Taiwan here. And you're, I think, a great person to be able to speak to this. You've been here uh, in Taiwan as a foreigner since the days of martial law. So you must have seen some changes in the way companies run over those years from when you first arrived. Taiwan always has been and to a large extent still is a, a country of small and medium businesses and, and really more small than medium and as a result uh, the management style in Taiwan has all always been what I what I call a, a lao ban based uh, system it's always about the boss the boss makes all the key decisions you know there's no one person that can be that good that can make all the decisions um, but again that's the way it is, and it's partially cultural. I think you, I'm sure, would agree with that, that, Steve, that, you know, the educational system in Taiwan inculcates this respect for, uh, you know... Authority figures, Authority, right? thank you, that's right. the word I'm looking for. Uh, and and so, and, and, and to never even question that, never even to raise your own views. Uh, and that's something that, as Taiwan is opening up to the world, as its corporations become more world-scale uh, corporations, uh, you're beginning to see them shake loose from. I mean, you came here as a very young man. So I came here right after college to study Chinese, uh, went back, did further studies in the States, uh, worked in uh, the Bank of Boston initially, uh, and... Austin, obviously, and then uh, Bear Stearns in New York, and then in London, probably was away for for about seven years. So the, you've had this kind of international experience. You picked up and you've seen how things were run in different places, and then you came back to Taiwan. And what was your first position in Taiwan? Well, I was very lucky. I came back as the boss, uh, uh, but which you could do back then. Which no? <laughs> you could do back then, a thirty-year-old uh, just off the boat uh, boss, but. Um, uh, of course, I was the boss of a company of one, but uh, eventually adding on uh, the team going going forward. Um, and it was, you know, the wild, wild east, as we called it back then, because the, I was in the stock market. The stock market was just, well, 
at that point wasn't quite even open to foreign institutional investors directly. Um, but uh, it was a booming market. It was uh, one of the greatest bull markets, you know, in history. Certainly, Taiwan and Japan together back then uh, were booming. In fact, the reason I came back to Taiwan from London was because it was in 1987 when we had a major market crash back then, the biggest single-day crash in history. <clears throat> and yet, the Asian markets, uh, you know had a very minor dip and then continued powering higher. And I figured, you know, this was indeed the, the age of Asia coming through. So you felt it was a change? You felt there was a kind of a shift in the world uh, politics and business at that time, yeah? Uh, yeah, exactly. The, the locus of, of the center of, of global economic uh, growth was moving to, to Asia. Despite all the uh, geopolitical tensions that we've seen, uh, in fact, even because of the geopolitical tensions we've seen, the Taiwan market has been strong. And the reason I say that is because as these tensions increase, there's a lot of sellers in the market for fear of, of you know, military uh, conflict, uh, which has happened many times. I mean, this is going back, I'm sure you uh, will remember this, back to 1996, uh, and, and yet uh, those have always been the best buying points in the Taiwan stock market. So it certainly has shown tremendous resilience. Every time I talk to someone about a stock market in Taiwan, they go, well, now's a bad time, or now's a bad, you know, and it's always, it always seems to be, you know, it always seems to be a bad time, and yet this bad time is always existing and people still buy. There's, there's information and then there's what people feel, right, and their response to things. How do you sort through that to get to the actual reality of what a market is going to be doing? Well, that's a really interesting question, Steve, and, and the answer ultimately is that uh, uh, we all know that the best time to buy the stock market is when everyone hates it, right? And yet we don't really know when actually it is that everyone hates the market. Uh, and so what I have done over the years is to develop tools to try to identify that, and looking primarily at liquidity, looking at money supply relative to market cap, which basically represents the sort of aggregate total uh, investable or, or, or liquid asset portfolio of most investors. And the more they have in cash versus equities, the more they are bearish on the market. And we can look at that ratio over time. And when it gets to extremes one way or the other, it means that it's time to be a contrarian. Uh, but in the interim, uh, you know, there's that common phrase that we say markets climb a wall of worry and it's only when people are negative about the stock market it's only when the headlines are negative about the stock market and of course very recently we are facing this recession that is as it's become known as the, the most well broadcasted uh, recession in history uh, the market is uh, one of its strongest bull market moves in recent memory so you just have to understand that markets are not necessarily reflecting uh, the, uh, the, the economic uh, uh, information flow. We've talked a lot on this show with, uh, with other leaders about the kind of the rise of social media and how that's influenced a lot of things. It influences the way people think, the way they feel. The availability of information and not necessarily good information Right? It's kind of scuttlebutt, right? It's like somebody feels something, they post it on Twitter. I mean, Elon Musk himself, you know, runs his own Twitter like it's his kind of personal notebook of uh, feelings and stuff. 
those things must influence, you know, uh, in an undue way, the way people respond to a stock market. That's a very good point, and it may be that we are seeing some of the higher volatility in the market, although actually, uh, by some measures, volatility is quite low right now. But uh, nonetheless, we do see that uh, there's a lot more awareness of the stock market and the sort of views that are driving it than, than is normally the case, and that's because of social media. And I think, on balance, that's probably a good thing. Um, but uh, it, it does create somewhat of an, you know, an echo chamber where people begin to play on the same views that they heard elsewhere. And, and so you know, the way I look at social media is uh, never believe any one data point and look at multiple data points. And there's multiple postings uh, and, and, and see if you can you know, uh, discern the truth as best as you can. Um, but uh, you know, to some extent, uh, people see it somewhere else and they post it themselves, and that creates almost a sense that you know it is true, even though, uh, in fact, uh, uh, it isn't. And I say that because uh, I, but I myself have been caught wrong on this market because I've been listening to a lot of experts uh, uh, who have been espousing a very negative outlook for the market because of the very negative outlook for the economy. And indeed, the economy, to some extent, has been showing some very, very negative numbers, and yet the market continues higher. So this is, you know, something I'm going to, have to step back from and try to learn a few more lessons from. So information is amazing. I remember I went through a process, and this is pre the kind of social media um, rise, but there was an article published, I think, about 200 years ago. Not 200; it couldn't be that long. Must have been about 50 years ago. And it basically said that in Australia, where I grew up, mm. from Scotland, but I grew up in Australia, and it said that uh, taxi uh, Australians ride in the front with taxi drivers, right? This article was then kind of researched, republished, and reformatted, and many people doing their research over the years simply took that as being the fact. And so it became this established fact that in, in Australia people ride in the front with the taxi drivers and it just wasn't true <laughs> but everybody had gone back to and they traced it back to this one single source because somebody came and they sat in the front and the, people, you know, the taxi drivers like what are you doing well you know i've read all the books <laughs> <laughs> you know there are multiple sources and they all say the same thing which is that people ride in the front with taxis in australia very friendly country and it just it it was a great point for me to just sort of like you know as you say multiple data points but check where they're all coming from right mm. i mean they could all be you know Elon Musk puts out a tweet. People amplify that tweet. It then goes to Facebook. It then goes to whatever. And so suddenly everybody's going, well, Tesla's a thing you've got to buy right now because they're about to fly to the moon or something like that, you know? How, how do you, I mean, how do you verify all this stuff? And how do you, I mean, you must have teams of people, right? I, I'm not saying you've got thousands of people. But you have teams of people who are doing research and trying to find out information, establish facts. How do you go about training and building a team like that? And how do you instill a culture in those people where they're not just taking the first bit of information that comes along and just passing it to you and saying, job's done. Yeah. I've done my research. You know? Well, ultimately, you have to get to the original source. You have to talk to the people involved in the industry. And that's certainly what we've always tried to do, whether it's at Citigroup or at QIC or any of the other companies that I've worked for. Um, and uh, the, uh, the, the, 
the the clients that we have served uh, have always relied on us to give them what we call corporate access as well. So it's, it is getting to the primary source ultimately. Uh, you can't do that for everything and you can't do that always. But to the extent that you can pick out certain data points from direct conversations with the leaders or the key people in these companies, uh, you'd be able to get some semblance of the truth. The other data points that you get, whether it's from social media, whether it's from financial statements, or from uh, you know uh, traditional media sources, uh, will help to fill out some of that uh, uh, picture uh, that you're trying to paint. But ultimately, uh, you have to go to original sources. So let's come on to kind of leadership for a second. I'm really interested in this. Obviously, this is a leadership podcast, and we talk about that. It's been fascinating, kind of getting this data information. But I want to, building a team of people who you can trust. Uh, I mean, obviously clients trust you. You have an established reputation. You then have to build a team of people who who can support that. How do you go about recruiting, developing and training people to get to a point where they can do what you've been doing pretty naturally for the last 30, 40 years? 30 years, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like forever, whatever it is. Um, well, I have been very fortunate over the years in that the industry that I was in, uh, I guess still am to some extent, uh, has been very easy to recruit people because it's just a popular industry to, to move into. Uh, less so now than before, though. But uh, nevertheless, um, finding candidates was never that difficult. Finding the right people is far trickier. Right. Uh, right, just because someone wants to be there doesn't mean that they should be. Exactly, and, and so it's it's a, it's a it's acquired skill to be able to determine whether a person is appropriate. So you think it's a question of judgment, really? You 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 just kind of you could judge, right? You feel something about the. I mean, some people tell me when they do interviews, they it's ten seconds and they've made a decision. <laughs> they literally walk in and they get a feeling. I'm sure there's a bit of bias in there, which I don't think is appropriate. But but you think that you can kind of feel out a candidate pretty quickly. To some extent, yes. I mean, I, maybe longer than ten seconds. <laughs> but uh, you do need to work with people who ultimately are able to uh, project confidence in what they are doing or who they are themselves. Um, because if you don't have confidence in yourself, no one's going to have confidence in you or anything that you tell them. So that's always the first uh, key metric that we'd be looking for. Um, the ability to express themselves, you know, uh, once they you know, have that projection of confidence, they have to also be able to say something coherent, and that's another uh, sort of ch- uh, checkpoint that we have to work through. Um, and ultimately, uh, are they someone that you would like to work with as well? And because if you would want to work with them, if you'd like to work with them, presumably their colleagues would as well. Because the whole idea of a company, of a firm, is getting individuals to come together and work together and create something that they couldn't achieve separately. And in order to achieve that, 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 uh, that gravitas, you have to have a good working environment and a good working relationship on a peer-to-peer basis as well. 
Now, the overall environment is up to you as a leader or up to the company more broadly, uh, but the peer-to-peer -peer working relationship, uh, you have to pick the right people uh, as well. And how would you describe the, you say the leader has to create the environment. How would you describe the environment that you would like to create? Well, I think first of all, as a leader, you have to show that you are there to support the interest of your employees. It's not, and most managers, not most, that's not fair to say, but many of them, or the poor managers, um, are uh, view it the other way around. They think that the employees work for the manager. I look at it as the manager is working for the employees, or, and certainly the employees need to feel that way. They need to feel that the manager is out there looking after their interests. So if they do something, they make a positive contribution to the team's effort, it will be recognized and they will be rewarded for it. Uh, and so I always make a point of giving positive reinforcement far more than negative. In fact, I, I always make it a point never to yell at or to be uh, at all uh, overly critical. I mean, you have to obviously point out mistakes that have been, making, have been made, but uh, nonetheless, uh, always with a positive tone to it. Uh, and certainly to, to praise them when good work has been done. Uh, I also make a point to uh, go to bat for them in you know, the year-end uh, you know, promotions and, and salary raise discussions uh, so that they feel that, again, uh, what they're putting in is, is helping them personally to develop. Uh, and I even tell my employees that you know, I want you to someday try to replace me. Uh, because to the extent that you succeed in raising your own game and raising your own position in the company, it, in the end, is going to help me uh, because I have a team now of far more senior, more, more capable people uh, who can help the company itself uh, provide a better service to clients and to make more money for itself, uh, and that reflects well on myself. I think this is a really super interesting point about... Um building a team so that in some ways they can be better than you, right? And supporting them. I, I again, I, I, it's not my experience in every organization that people necessarily follow this philosophy. Um, it feels like there are some managers out there, and you alluded to it, that are kind of more about keeping you down than building you up. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, you clearly feel that that is the wrong way to approach a, a business. Um, building people up means that they're going to grow, they're going to move on, right? They're going to go and find other opportunities and stuff like that. Is that, I mean, is that a goal for you? You want to build your people up so that they can go off and fly and, you know? In a word, yes. Now, obviously, I'm not hiring people so that they can go on and leave afterwards because the worst thing that could happen to any organization or to any team is have uh, any turnover at all. It's tremendously disruptive and it takes up a lot of the leader's time, my, my time as a manager, uh, in managing that process, finding replacements, uh, training them up, getting them integrated into the team, it's a major, major setback for sure. Um, and so you don't want that to happen. Ideally, you're building an environment so that your own scope increases as your team improves and matures over time. Um, but if 
uh, someone does begin to grow faster than you can accommodate them, then either you try to uh, move them somewhere else into the company so that they still become, and if I can be uh, a little bit sort of mercenary in my uh, description of them, an asset of you. I mean, if we want to think purely from our own personal standpoint, which we ultimately all do, whether or not we admit it, that person if they become a more senior person elsewhere in the company and maybe geographically elsewhere as well in the company, uh, can only be right. an important asset for you to build be your own to, network, right? You're build building your, your own base, yeah. Your ability to get things done and, and to talk to the right people. Or if they do leave, at least it creates an impression for uh, either your own team or people outside that coming to work on this particular team is a great step for your own career development. And so as people leave to get better jobs, it actually increases your ability to attract new talent coming in. You alluded uh, to kind of the interest of people working in the finance industry as not as strong as it was when you first came in. Um, how, how do you see that? I mean, how does it, uh, what, what is it about is it the industry that's changed? Is it people that's changed? Is it the world that's changed? Why do you think that uh, interest has changed? Um, well, when I first started out in the industry, it was a booming industry. There was a lot of uh, steps toward liberalization of the industry back in the 70s, actually, uh, and, through, and, and through the early 80s uh, that allowed the industry to, to boom, liberalization of, of the, both the equity and, and credit side of the business uh, and that unleashed a lot of activity money flows uh, and profits uh, for the industry that uh, created this uh, environment where the companies the financial institutions were hungry for new talent and they were paying them very well too well quite honestly but nonetheless you know that that's the nature of all businesses um, Beginning in 2000 with the internet bubble, uh, and then again in 2008 with the global financial crisis, there were a whole series of regulatory steps that were put in place to corral the industry, reduce the excesses. And these were, in many cases, very badly needed you know, regulatory uh, steps to take. Um, but at the same time, it reduced the profitability of the industry uh, and indeed, the industry was already in the maturation stage so that the growth was slowing, the profitability was slowing, and the demand for people was declining as well, and so compensation was declining along with that. Uh, and this is why it's now not as easy to attract people. So you think it's really more, it's more a financial thing? It, it, it is, although quite honestly, I love the financial industry as well because it requires such broad knowledge of different industries, of different aspects of, of the economy. Uh, you're dealing with so many different people, uh, our clients, basically the investing institutional uh, 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 investors uh, who are you know, all around the world. So we had to travel to meet our clients in Europe, in, uh, in Asia, and course throughout the US uh, so it was intellectually a very stimulating environment but do you find that do you find that people are changing uh, the people that you're looking for so new recruits let's say in your 20s or something like that now are these people different to kind of the the people that you would have been recruiting you know 10 15 20 years ago 
has there been a change in the way you know people talk about gen z gen y gen x everything you know that there are, everybody has different approaches to life um, and it's a number of, I did some work at, uh, at one of the universities in Taiwan and everybody there wanted to be a KOL. That was literally their entire plan. And they wanted to work for somebody. This was what they were saying to me. They wanted to work for somebody um, to get money to start their own business, which was to be a KOL. I, so, I mean, have you noticed, is there a change or is this a specific group of people that I happen to bump into? You know, is there a change in the marketplace now? Do you think that people, employees, potential employees, are, are, are changing and is this part of why it's harder to recruit people for your industry now or well, not harder but you know has changed well there there are for, first of all uh, yes absolutely uh, it's a big question i know yeah, <laughs> I wonder. yeah but I'll, I'll take it in two two different angles so um first of all uh certainly uh since in part because of the frothy capital markets and the ability for new startup companies to IPO and become uh, unicorns and, and create, you know, multi-millionaires of their, of their founders, uh, that whole process has drawn a lot of talents uh, into startup companies. And of course, the problem is that, I don't know what the actual number is, but I'm sure it's something on the order of 90 plus percent of them ultimately fail. Uh, and you never hear about that. Uh, it's all the glory that the, the remaining 5-10% uh, have achieved that, that still attracts all this talent into that um, uh, space. But nonetheless, that was certainly one phenomenon that I've seen. Um, but uh, the other is that uh, in part because of the regulatory constraints that have been put on the industry and thus on the profitability and on its growth, uh, the industry has been what we've been calling juniorizing, that we've been focusing more on hiring more junior people uh, and just having them do some basic uh, research uh, that needs to be done, although increasingly now that's going to be taken over by AI because a lot of it is just number crunching of, you know, uh, of, of released uh, financial reports. But um, you couple that with very senior people who, again, getting back to my earlier point, getting to the original source, talking to the leaders themselves with a personal relationship. And you can only do that if you are of at least some degree of similar seniority with them. Uh, that is the real value add as well. And so what often happens is that we're actually taking people not as financial analysts, but people out of the industry that we are researching itself, uh, be it the biomedical industry, be it the electronics industry, the financial industry, meaning you know, the, the banks and, and, and uh, other uh, uh, such companies in, in finance, and talking to the leadership there uh, directly. And, and so that's now bifurcating a bit from very senior, uh, well, from just sort of senior level people to now very senior and very junior people. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think you brought up a really interesting point about the way that I think careers are going now as well. I mean, if you look at uh, my father's generation, I think uh, he was very much about you kind of like you get a good trade, you follow that trade, you do that trade, and then you die. You know? I mean, that was kind of his, you know, his plan. I mean, my mother was a school teacher. She came out, she worked in schools, she retired, and she lived on that. 
It seems to me now, if you look at uh, on LinkedIn or if you look at the average CV of the average person coming in that I'm interviewing, uh, you know, they have done multiple things. They've worked in different, you know, they've worked in this industry for a little while. They've worked in that industry. Maybe they've done some advertising work then they've moved into even finance, as you've said, because they've got something, a skill set. I mean, it doesn't seem to be limited by industry now. And you've just brought up that point as you're talking about you're talking to people from different industries to actually give input into the financial sector. Um, so do you have any advice for, I mean, for someone coming out of, you know, let's assume that they've uh, at least done high school, you know, maybe they've gone on to college, now they're looking for their first jobs and stuff like that. You know, do you have advice for those people in kind of a, you know, is there a trajectory now that you could follow that makes sense or is it really just about kind of casting your net wide and seeing what's out there? Well, there are a number of different skill sets that are required to be successful in life and in one's career. Um, and there are some you know, very basic sort of functional tools that you need to learn and then there's some more specific uh, domain-related knowledge that you need to acquire. And my feeling, and I'm somewhat of a traditional on, on this, despite the new world that we find ourselves in, uh, is that uh, the people I've seen succeed over, over the long run are those who uh, start out at more traditional corporate type of positions. Again, assuming you want a corporate uh, career path. Uh, because there are some basic communication and uh, uh, team-based tools that you need to learn uh, that you can then take to a startup if that's the way you want to go in the long run. Um, the uh, domain-based tools uh, obviously also require uh, more deeper knowledge or more long-term uh, exposure. Uh, and so having the corporate environment to gain that level of knowledge is, is important too. So I, I still encourage younger people to uh, hold back their ambitions initially and do some basic training. It's like, you know, going to school. Uh, and just because you graduated from college or from graduate school doesn't mean you're ready to be a chairman of a, of a company. Uh, As a lot of people are very disappointed to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and I know this won't stop them from trying either. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, I think... Uh, at some point, uh, it, it is worth trying to, to take that step. Uh, so it's, um, I mean, Picasso talked about painting, right? And uh, there are a lot of people who go straight to kind of um, abstract, you know? They kind of, they don't go through the path of learning how to paint, get the skills. Picasso himself was an extremely talented life skill painter. You know, he could, uh, he could paint accurately, almost photorealistic. And then he went on to be an abstract painter. He chose that path. And I feel like what you're, you're kind of talking about this, where you get skills. You know, there's nothing wrong with having skills. Learn how to play the guitar, and then you can do whatever music you want in whatever style you feel like it, you know. Learn the corporate kind of processes and then take them on and do whatever you want in whatever startup you want. There was a, a, I interviewed here um, a Care Her company, the founder of that company. She founded a company and then realized that she was missing something. She actually left her own company with other people, went off to work in the corporate world for a couple of years, 
and then came back and took over her own company again because she felt she was missing, you know, this kind of rigor, if yeah. you like, which you're talking about, you know. Absolutely. That's very interesting and, and you know, very admirable for someone to actually take that step. Um, the, the fact is that, uh, you know, as I said, the great bulk of new startup companies will fail. That's the fact. Those are the numbers. Um, and yet the fact, too, is there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with failing. In fact, uh, I, you know, we used to always say, because I started out on the trading desk in finance. Uh, I've been doing more research uh, in, the, in the years since. But we used to always say about young traders that the worst thing that could happen to them is they get on the trading desk and they start making money. Uh, because then they're on the path to disaster. <laughs> you have to lose money, you have to fail, you have to set, sit back and s figure out what you did wrong, do a post-mortem, and figure out how to avoid those mistakes going forward. And that's all part of, of being an entrepreneur as well. Uh, now you can avoid that by staying in the corporate world, and there's nothing wrong with that either. And, and you look at some of the leaders of, uh, of companies, and there are often people who have stuck with the company year after year. It's because uh, if you stick with the company for 10, 20, 30 years, the, the, you obviously have very strong links within the company. You have um, uh, the trust of the company, and you have deep knowledge, that domain knowledge that we were talking about as well. Uh, and so you ultimately do very well too. Um, but uh, I often tell people too that your uh, your life uh, compensation, lifetime compensation, will be somewhat of an S curve. It'll start out slow, start low, and grow slowly, and continue to grow slowly for many, many years until you start going up that sharper end of the of that S curve. Uh, toward the latter part of your career, uh, and then at some point, as you get like me, where you just don't have the uh, uh, energy maybe to keep plowing away at it, uh, it that, that S-curve begins to flatten out again. Uh, but that's kind of the way you should be looking at it. And you want to position yourself to be on that sharp end of the curve at some point. Uh, and that's just about being consistent and building up that, uh, as I said, functional and domain knowledge base. You talked about this idea of um, startups, you know, <clears throat> and there's a lot of people have a, kind of a dream for startups. Uh, it feels like more young people now talk about um, startups, you know, that they want to have their own business. It feels like something that's kind of become something. You know, when I went through college or whatever, it was more about getting a good job, getting a position, get the kind of corporate uh, position or something, at least an internship that can, you know, treat, teaches you some skills and stuff like that. Um, but I, and I, yeah, I'm going to come back to kind of the arts, right? The arts. When you listen to kind of, you know, um, Oscar speeches, you know, for the Academy Awards, you know, all of these actors who are being paid $20 million for a movie or something like that, most of them talk about, you've got to follow your dreams. You must, you know, stay on the course, follow your dreams. What they don't tell you is that, you know, LA is basically 99% poor people working as waiters um, who've been following their dreams and it never happens, right? I mean, you know, for every Brad Pitt, there's a thousand equally good looking guys, equally as uh, 
mediocre as actors. <laughs> no, he's quite a good actor now. I think he's grown. Um, but, you know, for every one of those follow your dream people, there's a whole bunch of people who are still following their dreams and haven't quite made it there. So what am I saying? It sounds depressing. I don't mean to say that. But, I mean, I think just having a dream is not enough, right? You're talking about having rigor as well. You've got to have, you know, some base to your dream. You've got to have a plan. You've got to have effort. You've got to have all of these things. And maybe just a little bit of luck somewhere. Oh, there's always going to be luck. Uh, coming in and and as an individual as a company it's always about luck but you have to be positioned to take advantage of that luck when it comes you have to be able to recognize it when it's in in front of you um, but getting back to your follow your dreams comment I couldn't agree more and I always uh, bristle at that comment because it's such a naive thing to say uh, first of all uh, I don't believe that I, as a 21-year-old college graduate, knew what my dreams were uh, and certainly wasn't in a position to be able to execute on them on my own. Um, secondly, um, again, it gets back to what we were saying earlier, is that you can dream anything you want, but unless you have some basic skill sets to achieve that, you're just going to flounder. And uh, you know, when you do that, I've seen so many people who, um, uh, you know, ultimately uh, lose their job or they go from one startup to the other. Uh, and, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years go by and they really don't have anything to show for it. And they're getting to the point where, at that point in their life, they should be at more senior levels and they're still trying to break in. Uh, so you can lose a lot of time just trying to be poetic and not really being uh, sort of more precise in your, in your own you know, career and life element. For you, I know that you're, uh, you're, you're very into fitness. I mean, you do triathlons, you ride your bike a lot, all these kinds of things. And I... Uh, bringing this sort of idea back to that area, you know, a lot of the leaders that I speak to on this program talk about the importance of physical health, but they also talk about it in terms of setting goals, building a base, you know, teaching yourself, training, getting to, you know, I, I, it feels like there's a kind of a theme that comes through almost to a T. It's rare now that I find a leader that doesn't have some form of personal kind of, uh, what would it be, uh, ambition or goal in the in the physical sense or in some other way you know they train they keep themselves fit how important to you is this as part of your overall kind of professional development it's an interesting point uh it's i think extremely important not that you can't be successful without having an active physical training program uh, but it certainly does help in, in many respects first of all uh, just being physically healthier and having more endurance is, is often, you know, an important uh, uh, success factor. But beyond that, um, yes, I mean, I, I always tell people if you want to start running, the first thing you do is sign up for a marathon because you're not going to start a rigorous running program without having that pressure without having that gun to your head and so we all need a bit of pressure to be able to it's achieve. the goal and the time sensitiveness of the goal it's like you've got to do that on a certain date at a certain time right exactly and 
Yes, I, I totally agree with that. It's like, you know, would I ever write a report if I didn't have to do a board meeting? <laughs> you know, it's like you know that it's next Monday and you're going to do it. Would I train if I didn't know that I had a marathon coming up in two months, three months or whatever? Uh, the answer is yes, maybe I would, but... But not as hard. Correct. Not as effectively, correct. yeah. Um, so that's one where one area where I think, you know, the training or the physical exercise comes into play. The, the other is, um, uh, you know, you talk about bicycling. I always say that bicycling is a, a, a process of, of falling enough times that you figure out how not to fall thereafter. Uh, or as Mark Twain was once reputed of saying, uh, I love bicycling. If I live past the first year of it, uh, I'm sure I'll have a great time at it. Um, and, you know, it is a dangerous sport and you do fall, but when you fall, you well, well remember what you did that created that situation and, and you're going to be damn sure you're going to avoid that going forward. Uh, and this is what I was saying earlier about every time you make a mistake, and this is another sort of philosophy I try to follow, is every time I make a mistake, I sit back and I do a post-mortem. What happened? What did I do wrong? And how can I avoid doing that same mistake again? So these are all sort of mindsets that we have to inculcate. I, I think this idea of assessing failure to improve is a really important one. And I, I feel like the difference between success and failure I mean the longer term, right? Is the the people who can look at a failure and think of this as a learning opportunity. What am I gonna take out of this and how am I gonna get better at it, you know? I I think we've all done embarrassing things in our lives, we've all done stupid things, we've all been places, we've all said things we shouldn't have said, we've all kind of put in very average days of work sometimes or not been prepared for something or as you've just said you know entered marathons without preparation and stuff I think we've all done these sort of things and then you know you do that there are two kinds of people right there's the people that just go well that was terrible I'm never going to do that again meaning I quit you know I'm out of this and the other people go well didn't do my best here's what I've learned you know buy a pair of shoes that actually fit me next time or, uh, you know, get some training in or uh, get some preparation or I will never go into a business meeting without actually having, you know, some kind of preparation or I'm going to study the language before I go to a country next time or, you know, or whatever it is. I think this is super important for people going forward. I think it's a great lesson. If there's nothing else people get out of today, I think that in itself is learning from your failures and taking those failures, well, taking that experience, that learning and becoming better for it. Right, exactly. Embracing the failures. Right, right. And, and, and leveraging them into something that, uh, that is better. You know, we're, we're also in a world of greater sort of digital um, sort of information and, and so that so many things that we do now uh, can be better quantified. Uh, you know, in the work environment now, uh, everyone, everyone's client interaction is through a CRM uh, module that uh, records their, uh, their, their number of, of access points and their number of uh, sort of reports that they've written and, and so on and so forth. And, and so I think this is something that we should also be embracing is to take these numbers that we have, again, getting back to the training issue, uh, you know, 
Uh, I and many of my friends are always looking at our data, you know, what was our distance, what was our time, what was our heart rate, uh, what was our fitness level, uh, and finding points of weakness that we need to work on. Uh, and so we should be doing the same in the work environment as well. Again, embracing the, the amount of you know, monitoring that's being done of us, not looking at it negatively, but something that we can use to improve ourselves. I think one of the things that I've got out of today is that uh, you never just take one data point and accept it, right? Go back to the source, right? And don't be afraid to go and talk to people, right? Go and find the people that you need to talk to. When you're in, get information, be quantifiable, right? You know that your information is correct and learn confidence, right? If you believe in what you're saying, project that to people so that you can kind of get the information across in a proper way. When you talked about teams, I really liked your approach to teams where you talked about supporting the team, building the team, you know, almost kind of, you know, helping them build wings so that they can then fly away on their own. But, you know, in the meantime, they're going to be helping you to get better, your team to get better, your company to get better. Don't suppress, bring people up to a better place. Interestingly enough, you talked about regulations uh, in, the, in the banking sector. And I thought this was an interesting point too, that, you know, you felt that regulations was necessary at a certain point. And, and a lot of bankers don't necessarily say that, but you've said these were necessary. So you believe in regulation, you believe in having kind of rule of law and stuff like that. So it's nice to have an environment where everybody can thrive. So I liked your approach to that. The, this idea of uh, following your dream. Yes, have a dream, you know, by all means have a dream, but you know, you've got to be aware that it's not just enough to have a dream. You've got to have some rigor to what you do. You know, your advice to people going out there would be to get some skill sets, get some basic skill sets that help you. You know, if you're going to run a marathon, well trained for the marathon. You know, if you're going to be in corporate world, well learn the processes that people are following. Even if you're going to run your own business, learn the processes from somebody else or go into somewhere and get in, you know, go into an environment where you can learn these kinds of things. And the last thing that we talked about, I think, was this idea of learning from failure, which I think is really super important, you know. And there's so much digital information out there now, you know, don't be afraid. I, I see people who are afraid of kind of, oh, you know, I walk in, I have to click a card, I have to, you know, do this, I have to log into my computer, Big Brother's watching me all the time. You're saying, use this information, right? If you know in a day that you're having 40 interactions or whatever it is uh, and you're supposed to have 50 or you need to have more, well, learn how to do that. Use that as information to make you better. So learning from failure and getting more rigor in what you do. And I, I, I think all of these things put together is a very clear example of why your career has been so successful both here and, and, uh, and internationally. And Peter, I want to thank you very much for your time today. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of throw out there as a final parting piece? Uh well, you know, as a, uh, a retired uh, financier, um, I also want to point out, particularly given this broader aging of populations uh, around the world, is that uh, we also need to be able to take advantage of some of the old folk around uh, who have the experience, who have the contacts. Uh, and it's not uh, the best thing to just have them retire uh, all together and so I think building a community of the you know the energy uh, of the of the young and the sort of knowledge the 
relationships of the old uh, is also something we need to think about building. Many corporations fail to do that, many societies have failed to do that. But it's another area I'd like to see some, some changes made. So in an area where we're building kind of, uh, we're building renewable energy, we're building sustainable resources, we shouldn't be wasting resources that we already have. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, yeah. Peter Kurtz, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. You can listen to this podcast live on the fourth Monday of every month on ICRT and after that on the ICRT website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Leadership Matters by Stephen Parker. You can also check out my social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. See you next time.